0: Hey there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Are you interested in becoming a writer as a journalist, a communications specialist, or a novelist? Well, my next guest has done all that and more. But before I introduce you to the multi-talented Sid Ballman, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays to give you an exclusive peek inside the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number and the sign up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my cafe au lait loving creative writers, please grab your mug and take a chug of a delicious caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my next guest is Sid Ballman, a Pulitzer Prize nominated former national security correspondent and specialist in behavior change communications who reported on wars in the Persian Gulf, Somalia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, and Kosovo and traveled extensively with two American presidents and four secretaries of state on overseas diplomatic missions. Then for two decades after leaving journalism, Sid moved into the communications field, working in the nonprofit world, the progressive political campaigning world, and the international development world, where he focused on violent radicalism and other security issues. Most recently, Sid has become a new novelist. His first book, Seventh Flag, will be in bookstores in October 2019. Sid, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go?
1: Well, hello, Andrea. Yes, I actually pulled out my Nespresso drawer and got my favorite mix, Pot of Caza and Cafecita de Cuba. Um, For the occasion
0: That is very fancy What is Kazaa?
1: Well, Nespresso rates their coffees from 1 to 10 And this is their Rocket Fuel (laughs) Number 10
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh
1: I figured I'd need to up my game for the podcast So Just to keep it a little mellow on the samba side, I put in a little cafecita de cuba to bring out the Latin mellowness of the day.
0: Oh, my goodness. You are one fancy guy, Sid. I had no idea.
1: (laughs) Well, you might learn more today as we get further. I
0: look forward to it. Well, firstly, huge congratulations on Seventh Flag. I can't even imagine how satisfying it must feel after so many years to have your book ready to go, ready to hit shelves in just a matter of weeks. Let me start by asking you, Sid, why you wanted to write Seventh Flag and what it's all about.
1: Certainly. Well, I'll start with the second part of that question, just a brief, as my publisher calls it, an elevator pitch. So Seventh Flag is a modern parable, really, about the radicalization of United States and Europe, from World War II to the present day. And I tell the story through two families, four generations of two families, in the small West Texas town of Dell City, which is about 80 miles east of El Paso. I grew up in Texas, I'm a fourth generation Texan, so that particular area of Texas has a special place in my heart. And these two families, one is a prosperous farming family, the other is a family of Syrian Muslim immigrants and 7th Flag takes them through their two iconic experiences in West Texas, growing up, football, farming, and then around the world through West Point and the wars of that period, what I think of as the profound radicalization of the West since World War II. So that's sort of the thumbnail on that. And I go back to my college days And if I could trace back to a moment when I really wanted to be a writer, thought I wanted to write, and then a 30-year journey that took me to the point where I actually wrote a book. In my junior year in college, I read a book called On the Road by Jack Kerouac. I actually ended up reading it seven times, and I would recommend that to any of your readers of any age, but particularly those who are thinking about what they may want to do with their lives. And that book had a profound impact on me, not only because of the way it was written, but also its message. This is the late 50s, message of experience and going and doing. Then the practicalities of life always set in, working, money, and career, and eventually family. And I always, when I'm asked, I was collecting yarn on a story for my entire career. And after 30 years, I finally found the thread in this theme of radicalism, which has been radicalism and violence, which has formed kind of a framework for a lot of my work. And so two years ago, I decided to finally pull the trigger on that and took a big risk, taking a lot of big risks in my life, and it paid off.
0: Why is it called Seventh Flag?
1: I imagine most of your listeners are familiar with Six Flags, the amusement park. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, when I was a kid growing up in Texas, there was an amusement park called Six Flags Over Texas, which was the first of that franchise. wasn't even a franchise back then. The Six Flags were representative of the six sovereigns over the state of Texas over the years, France, Mexico, the Confederacy, etc. cetera. And when I was considering the themes of this book, I say radicalism, but it includes really three of the primary dividers in our world today, the three R's, refugees, radicalization, and resources. When I say refugees, I mean migrants and everything that goes along with that, which we're experiencing with such great poignancy now under our current administration. So the seventh flag, to me, is kind of a ambiguous, new type of national identity, where it's not associated with any one race, any one religion, any one gender, But it's a new kind of banner that flies over this country. That was really the genesis and the message of the title.
0: Wow, that sounds really interesting. So, Sid, as you know, Time for Coffee is a show to help our young listeners understand more about various professions, and you've worn many hats over the years. The latest one is novelist. Could you take us into the process of writing a book? How did you write? What was the typical day like for you in the process of putting words on paper?
1: Well, the first thing I would say to that, Andrea, is something you know, which is how important it is to know how to just write plainly and clearly, which both of us as journalists, me particularly as a wire service writer, you at CNN, writing for TV, to write clearly, concisely, and to tell a story. So that's the critical first step. And anyone who wants to be a writer, I would recommend being a journalist for a while, being the newspaper or wherever that industry goes, the version of a newspaper writer. So that's the first thing I would say. Then I would go back, and there's a little step before I go into the process, and there was a real process for me. I'm very process-oriented. So I referred earlier to finding that right thread for this story, and I did find that a couple years after 9-11 in a documentary that was done about a all-Muslim football team in Dearborn, Michigan, the Dearborn Tractors. That was the high school. And this documentary traced this team in their first set of summer practices, so called two a days after 9 11, which happened to fall during Ramadan. For your viewers who don't know, Ramadan is the month where Muslims fast during the daylight hours and can only eat and drink when the sun is down. And as you can imagine, going through that as a football player, not being able to drink water or eat anything during these days in August when you're practicing was quite difficult. In a way, just sort of that really hit with me. And anyone who reads my book will see that there's a big chunk of it that does focus on that, on this family of Muslims. And a couple of them are football players. And there's a couple chapters about that very thing. So that kind of triggered it. Sort of like sculpting. The wheel turned around, the pot started to take shape in my hands. And another related event, I have a good friend who has a piece of land, really, outside of El Paso, in this town, Dell City. Over several years, we'd go out there. It's an off-the-grid kind of place. We'd go out there with a pickup truck full of heavy tools and lumber and just build one thing or another out there, solar-powered. The peak of our expertise was building a solar-powered drip irrigation system for a few pistachio trees. That ended up being where the story begins, in Dell City, Texas. And I got to know a couple of the families that the story's based on, and it all began to take shape. So that was kind of the the genesis of it. Now, in terms of the actual process, I would divide the writing process into two very distinct parts. There is the writing and research part, the fun part, and then there's the business side, which is very challenging, particularly for one who doesn't have a business background. Now, I did have a business background, so I enjoyed it. I think a lot of authors find it very frustrating, understandably so. In terms of process, I took a leave from my job a couple years ago, decided this is the time to write the book for a number of reasons we can get into later. But I gathered all this yarn, but I needed to fill in the gaps. So I spent several months down in West Texas, in this area, El Paso, in and out of the border areas, in Juarez, little further down, up along the border, because a lot of that plays into it. I also spent some time up at West Point. They were very gracious in allowing me to attend classes and speak to people and, and do research. And it's a truly remarkable place, as a remarkable place in the history of this country. My book benefited greatly from that. So once I was ready to write, I spent a lot of time developing timelines. This was a four-generation story, so it's important that events sync up with ages and times and what age is someone going to be for the first Gulf War? Will they have a child of the right age to be a lieutenant for the second Gulf War? And so on. I also spent that time character profiles and chapter outlines. And then once that was done, and like any good reporter, as you know, you need to be able to know that moment when you've done enough reporting that you have a story, and you don't need to go too far. A lot of young reporters will make the mistake just over-reporting stories and looking for the perfect quote or the perfect anecdote. And that's when a good editor will draw them back and say, OK, just sit down and start writing. And that's what I did. And my routine generally was I would get up very early, about 4.30 in the morning, do whatever workout I wanted to do that day, and then write till about one o'clock. One important lesson I knew and came back to me then was never to write and edit at the same time. Just write, and then come back later. And that's what I would do, I would take the dogs for a walk, or go to the grocery store, have a little lunch, and then at four or five o'clock I'd sit down and then edit what I had written that day. And my goal was to get a chapter done each day.
0: A whole chapter done every day?
1: A rough draft of a chapter every day, yes. The book is in two parts, about 23 chapters on each side, roughly 300 pages. As a wire service writer, I could write fast, I didn't get writer's block, I really knew what I wanted to write. And the fun part of that, really for me, was to not be too rigid, I set up a rigid process, but within that process, not to be too rigid about what I was doing, so that there were times when I would let a character grow organically within the story. Almost as if these people, well these people do come alive in your head. And so if one character would seem more natural for them to do something at a particular moment, rather than what I had very carefully scripted, I would just let that go. It would make some very interesting ways, turns in the story. And the same for the story itself. Things would happen, for example, a school shooting. There's a school shooting in the story, the tragic school shooting that I included along the way. It was not something I originally had, but There was a shooting that happened here in the United States, and I thought that was an interesting symbol for the radicalization of the country. That was the writing process, and it took me about seven months to write a rough draft of the book. It was fun. I really enjoyed it. The next phase is the business phase, and that's where the rubber really hits the road. There's many different ways to publish now. And I would say I'm no expert, but in my brief experience, the publishing industry is a profoundly disrupted industry now for a lot of different reasons, one of which is accessibility to publishing and publishing platforms, different ways of presenting information, and primarily the Amazon phenomenon, kind of jumping over the gatekeepers in a way, if you will. I would compare it to the film industry, the Sundance phenomenon. Mm -hmm. In the last few years, independent publishers have really risen to the forefront. You have the corporate publishers, Harper and Random House and Penguin and so forth. And then you have the big independent houses. And when you start trying to sell a book, the first step is to find an agent. And that can be very, very difficult because the margins of profit on books are so small that agents tend to, in my limited experience, tend to sell what sells. And it's hard to break in as a new author. That's why you see these endless series of books and and so forth. And nobody really wants to seem to take a chance. So that was my first step to find an agent. I talked to a couple, talked to people in the industry. It was the third agent who happened to work with independent publishing houses who just saw the book, really liked it. Her name is April Eberhardt. And she had a publisher in mind. And from the time we first spoke, it was about three weeks till I had a contract. Very exciting with an independent publishing house called Spark Press. And then we were off and running. It's a very detailed process. It's taken about a year from initial edits to content edits, legal edits, proofreading, cover design, which is really very interesting process, quite fun. As an interesting side note, and this sort of, I find is sympathetic or complementary to the book itself, the designers for the cover of this book are a small company in Pakistan, which I had worked with before in, in some other work I'd done called Creative Frontiers. They do graphic novels and animations and corporate animation work, advertising. I liked their work so much, and I was a very good friend with the owner of that company in Lahore. I asked the publisher if they could take a crack at the cover, and they did, and I think that they did a wonderful job. So while Islam is a major theme in this book, not traditional Islam, but Islam as it has taken root in the United States and in Europe, so I find it really satisfying to me that the cover of this book was designed by... Pakistani Muslims, kind of a fun little side note. And I really, really like the cover that your listeners can go on Amazon and see it. It's available for pre sale. So, aside from that, the next step, you start getting into the publicity side. You hire the publicity firm, hire you start developing social media channels. You start doing all sorts of things, such as your podcast here. And it all leads to the launch. And in the fall, I will be doing a whole launch tour, a five week tour that begins in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and stretches to Denver, Colorado, going through the South and the Southwest and up into the West. That's the process.
0: Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you for laying that all out, Sid. I know, and you've alluded to this, that you have done an awful lot of writing over the course of your career, and this is your first novel. Beside the necessity to stick to the facts as a journalist. What would you say the biggest difference is that you found in writing fiction versus being a reporter for UPI and other outlets?
1: Well, this is historical fiction. So I kind of jokingly thought of it as a journalist's dream, because you have a story you can tell based on the facts, but you can make up all the quotes and all the best scenes. <laughs> what we always what we Wish always we could wanted to do. <laughs> I mean, with the legitimate news sources, which we both know and don't mean to name, there is no fake news. And I cringe every time I hear that term, whether it's a Democrat or Republican or a President or a Prime Minister. But the legitimate news outlets do not manufacture fake news. They are dedicated to accuracy, which of course can be elusive. But with historical fiction, and for example, people have asked me, well, are there that many Muslims in Texas? And in my research, I found a real interesting little chapter on this. Back in 1856, President Franklin Pierce decided to create something called the U.S. Army Camel Corps. And he sent, the theory was that camels would be great pack animals in the high desert of the southwest of this country. They live on creosote and cactus. They can go for miles and it might be a good adjunct to the cavalry. So they sent hundreds of ships over to the Middle East, bought thousands of camels, brought over thousands of camel drivers from places like Syria, Lebanon, Egypt, landed in just south of Houston, migrated up into West Texas and New Mexico and started this grand experiment which ultimately failed for two reasons. One, horses and camels don't get along. And two, the mythical U.S. cavalry didn't like the idea of having camels around. They preferred their horses. So they disbanded it somewhat later, and the camels were sold to circuses and so forth. But the camel drivers stayed and lived in the United States. One in particular, his name was Haji Ali, which Americans we do, his name was turned into a nickname, Hi Jolly. He ended up settling in Quartzsite, Arizona. If you're ever in Quartzsite, Arizona, there's a monument to him with a camel on the top. And the residue of this is that Texas has the most Muslims of any state in the United States. And that's part of the reason. And that's how I get my family from Syria to the United States.
0: Oh, my gosh, that is fascinating. I had no idea. Mm hmm. So for our young listeners, Sid, who think perhaps they'd like to get into writing novels, what advice do you have for them as to how they can get started and then how they could execute on their vision?
1: Well, as I said before, one needs to learn how to write well. And there's many professions that teach you how to write well, clearly and concisely. We all studied Anyone who majored in English read a variety of books. William Faulkner, for example, who's a fabulous writer, but it's a very unique sort of style. I think Ernest Hemingway, who started out as a reporter, as a war correspondent, by the way, has a very journalistic style. That's my style. Straightforward, shorter sentences. So the first step, I would say, if you want to be a novelist, you need to have something to write about. In my experience, there are very few... Young people, and I don't even know what really qualifies as a young person these days, but young and inexperienced people who have a great story to tell. There are exceptions, of course, many exceptions, but I think most of us, like me, for example, need to go through experiences and gather them like yarn. So don't be in a rush, but write, and write a lot. You don't necessarily need to be published. You can have journals, and there were many times... As I was writing my book, that I pulled out journals from some of my travels, and I think of one. There's a scene in my book that takes place in the middle of the night at the Calcutta airport, and that's a very unique experience. And so, I pulled out an old journal from some travel I'd had when I landed at the Calcutta airport, and was able to recreate that down to some very granular details. So, write journals, and don't be in a rush, and learn how to write well. I guess those would be my advice.
0: Okay. So when you say that you kept journals, how old were you when you started writing in them? And the fact that you've kept them over the years, is this something that you have done
1: since you were a young guy? I really didn't start doing it until I took my first grand, (laughs) my grand trip, which I think you may know, was after college. I went to Vanderbilt University. And after college, took a trip around the world, it was supposed to be a little yeah, less than a year, ended up being almost a year and a half, I me and a buddy of mine. And we were dedicated to finding the best climbing, surfing and paddling spots and partying spots to around the world. And that was really the first dedicated journaling I'd done. And those were some of the ones I pulled out for my book.
0: Incredible. I want to ask you more about that trip in a moment. But since you mentioned that you went to Vanderbilt, I should also let our listeners know that you got a Bachelor of Science in English and a minor in business. Sid, did you know what you were going to do with those degrees when you graduated?
1: Well, it's not so much that I knew as my parents knew. My parents, they were wonderful parents. They were not what would be called helicopter parents now in any major way, just caring, loving parents who wanted to direct me the right way. My father had a business, quite a prosperous business. He was a builder. He moved down to Texas after World War II. He was a pilot in World War II and a prisoner of war. And when he was released and came back to the States and the war was over, he went down to Texas and decided to be a builder and he was quite successful. And the idea, as in many family businesses, was that, OK, do your trip around the world and come back and join the family business and take it over, which I did for several years. But always in the back of my head, particularly after the last few years of college and my travels, I knew that. That was not going to really be what I wanted to do for my entire life. Nothing wrong with it. The time I did it, I enjoyed it. I particularly enjoyed working closely with my father. And at one point, he became quite ill, and I had to step away from my journalism career and take over his company for about a year until he passed away. So it was a good thing I didn't know the business. But... Came back from the trip, worked in that business for several years, and then decided to pursue my interest in writing, and particularly in foreign affairs and security affairs, which I figured if I was going to be a writer, I needed to make a living. The best way to make a living as a writer, I thought, was through journalism, regular paycheck and benefits and so forth. And back then, journalism still existed in the old way, (laughs) the fun way, the way that you might read about In a Movable Feast by Ernest Hemingway which sort of grabbed me, the International Herald Tribune and the Espresso and the <laughs> running off to file a story. And so I went to graduate school in Washington at American University and studied journalism and public affairs, took a couple courses in the School of International Relations and law school, and, and that got me started. Well,
0: before we touch on your career as a journalist, I want to go back to that trip that you and your buddy made around the world. And in particular, maybe something that you took away from that experience of a year and a half of looking for the best climbing, surfing, or paddling and parties that you could have You and I chatted before this interview began, and you said that you worked for six months as a waiter at TGIFs, which for those of you who may not know what it is, thank God it's Friday, one of those chain restaurants, to save up the money to go. What would you say to our listeners, Sid, if you had to make a pitch as to why they should consider doing something like that, waitering and then traveling or however they decide to earn the money? What difference that experience made to you in your life?
1: It made all the difference in my life, as I think I've described throughout the interview. And I think I would say a couple of things. Firstly, for your listeners, life has become so accelerated now. It seems through the social media brands and presences we see from our friends and celebrities or pseudo celebrities that... People are successful so quickly and everything they do is successful and here's this one's wedding and Martha's Vineyard, here's this one's fabulous puppy and fabulous job and life is not really like that. So what a trip like that does, and when I took that trip, there was no World Wide Web. As a matter of fact, in that year and a half, I spoke to my parents twice. Mm. And I can't imagine my kids going off to some of the places I did and only really speak to them twice. And I was able to get mail twice, one at the post office in Bangkok, the other at the post office in Rome. Mm. You're really out of touch. You really find out the person you are when those in authority are not watching. And that's important, really a chance to grow. So that's one thing. The second thing is, in my experience, There's kind of two general types of people as they look at careers in life, those who are afraid of failure and those who are pursuing success. Many times they will end up in the same place. It's just a very different path, a very different psychology. I was not motivated by fear of failure, but I was really motivated in pursuing success and willing to fail. And I would say just one other thing, kind of general advice, is to look at chance and luck. And I heard this on a podcast a while back, and it really hit home for me. People always talk about getting lucky, like this guy on Jeopardy, who just set the record for money won. But you will not have the opportunity to experience luck unless you take a chance. Those who don't take chances don't know what it means to be lucky. So don't be afraid to take a chance. Know that you will fail. I had, believe me, plenty of failures, plenty of low moments. Me too. But I (laughs) I also had some lucky moments. And one little example, I had a good job in journalism here in Washington. And this was about the time of the first Gulf War, and I wanted to cover the war. That was my Stephen Crane and Ernest Hemingway and so on. And the organization I was working for, for some practical reasons, primarily insurance reasons, didn't want to send reporters to cover the war. So I left that company, took a big chance, and got taken on as a stringer by Time magazine and also by my existing company and went over to cover the Iraq war, first Iraq war. As fate would have it, I ended up striking up a strong relationship and lifelong friendship with a man named Frank Chongus who went on to become the Washington bureau chief of United Press International. He had been the diplomatic and national security correspondent. And after the war, he called me up at the age of 28, 29 and said, hey, you want my old job? <laughs> the dream job, the job I thought that I would end my journalism career in a Tom Friedman or Peter Jennings or this one or that one or Andrea Koppel for that. Oh, please. (laughs) And there it was. I took a big chance and just got lucky. It wasn't calculating. It wasn't angst ridden. It just happened. So that's really what I would say. Some lessons. uh, Just one last thing. I just finished Walter Isaacson's book about Leonardo da Vinci. I don't really think of myself as a hyper-intellectual person, but this is a book that I learned a lot. What I really learned was that Leonardo da Vinci, leaving aside The Last Supper and the Mona Lisa, (laughs) some of the most monumental works of art in the history of the world, was a great generalist. He was an engineer. He was an anatomist. He was a weapons designer. He designed rounded castles so that cannonballs would bounce off instead of impact. He studied water, and he came up with a theory in the 1500s based on his study of eddies and currents and hydraulics of how heart valves worked, why one opened and one closed at the same time. Up until the 1990s, actually, the book is to be believed, and I think it is. Walter Isaacson's fabulous journalist. It was thought that it was an electrical kind of activity, when in fact, it was the function of water flow, so that the heart valves opened and closed consecutively. Very interesting. So he never was a huge success during his lifetime. As a matter of fact, he carried the Mona Lisa around with him almost till his death, adding a brushstroke here, a brushstroke there. And he did okay, but he enjoyed himself. He had many friends, many acquaintances. He kind of bounced a little bit from one commission to the next, but led a good life, a full life and a happy life and was a genius, pure genius that wasn't realized till years later. But if he had not indulged his interests and his passions, the world would have been far worse off for it.
0: And so the takeaway from the Leonardo da Vinci life story is kind of follow your interests. Follow
1: your interests. Follow your passions to the degree we all have to be practical in life, too. But follow your passions, follow your interests, and stick with it. Stay focused. In my experience, it's the people that stick with whatever it is that drives them for the long run. Life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. I mean, even now, at my age, at my advanced age, I have launched this new career as a writer, and I couldn't be happier about it.
0: I love it, Sid. And the other piece to add, of course, based on the examples that you laid out earlier are take chances. Don't be afraid to take chances in your professional life and in your personal life, because even if you fail, there will be incredible lessons and moments of joy that you will be able to, and even the pain that you will be able to apply to your life in ways that you can't even imagine. I want to ask you about one of those painful times for you, Sid, in your professional life. You alluded to the fact that you've had many. I, too, have fallen flat on my face. (laughs) (laughs) And even though it hurt like hell, I look back on those experiences with gratitude because I wouldn't be where I am now in my life doing what I'm doing, which I absolutely love, even though I haven't earned a penny from it. Could you share a time in your professional life, Sid, when you struggled, maybe you face planted, and what lesson you may have learned in the process?
1: There's many examples. I could do a whole podcast on my failures, but I'll focus on two. One, more existential, one, more practical. During the war in Bosnia and Herzegovina, I was a reporter, covered it, and your listeners may remember this was in the 90s, that it was a genocidal effort. There's debate over what qualifies as genocide, but to me, this was a genocide where the Bosnian Muslims were basically being exterminated. During part of that time, I was in Sarajevo, dodging and up and down Sniper Alley. It was extremely dangerous. People just being shot in the streets and bodies laying for days. And that was really an existential crisis for me in a way, in that I didn't really, i covered the first Gulf War, but that was more of a set piece kind of war. You didn't see a lot of that. But this was very real, very personal. And it brought home to me, I don't want to use the word shattered, but man's inhumanity to man. Terrible, terrible violence against people for no real reason other than centuries of ethnic hatred. And At one of the lowest moments then, about one of the times when I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't need this. I had heard of a nice little story that I might be able to cover involving a family, a Muslim family, and I went to their apartment. And what I encountered was a very normal family, mother and father and two children, young children, trying to maintain normalcy. You see that a lot in wars where families will try to keep things normal for the kids. And what this father had done, and I'll never, ever forget it, like kids all over the world, they wanted to wake up, eat their breakfast and watch cartoons, what drives us crazy as parents. But they had no electricity. But what this father had done, he was an engineer, he had set up a bicycle in his living room and connected a small generator to the bicycle. And in the morning, the father would get on the bicycle and pedal for a little bit to generate enough electricity for the kids to watch cartoons mm. while they ate their breakfast. So that really kind of restored just on the moment, just boom, restored me. So that was a more of an existential low point, more a work oriented low point. I think there were really two. One was one of the first stories I ever wrote back when I was on the Metro desk of the old Dallas Times Herald and covering cops and robbers and high school football, all the kinds of things. One of my favorite jobs. My Metro editor sent me over to a local high school. There had been a young man who was a football player, had an accident, and was paralyzed. Tragic. Every parent's nightmare. And I called up his mom, did an interview. And during the course of this interview, she said that through her grief, it might have been better if he didn't live. And I was a very young journalist. And to me, that was what we call the money quote. I don't mean to be hard about that, and I learned a lot from it, but I put that. That was basically my lead, put that into the story. And the next day, the mother called me up and was just upset, rightfully so, and just talked to me and made me feel rightfully so. How little I understood about being a parent, how insensitive I was as a reporter, particularly dealing with normal people as opposed to these people in Washington or New York who understand working with the media, people put their guard down. You know, that is a story that exists forever within the newspaper. And this mother and this father and his family had that forever. And that was a very low moment for me. I talked about it a lot with my editor. And it taught me to not just to always go for the jugular, to always go for the best quote, but sometimes to exercise restraint and feeling for the people you're writing about. And that's been a great lesson for me. And then, the last low moment, I've had CEOs resigned. I was very close to the, from the companies I was working for. But recently, I was working up until a couple years ago. I worked for a very large international development firm. I was a division director, and they were working in the area of what they call countering violent extremism, gang violence, counterterrorism, mostly on behalf of governments, and My piece of that was what happens on the web in terms of recruiting and how that all works. And that's part of my book as well. But the Obama administration was very progressive in that area and funded a lot of the work that this company did, like a lot of companies did in this area. And I enjoyed it. and We were doing well. And then the new administration came in, the Trump administration. And I don't think anyone would think of them as progressive in this area. But they were the opposite of that. They didn't believe in looking at things like community resiliency or what drives people to do these things. They were only interested in police work and intelligence. And this whole small enterprise we had built pretty much overnight had the plug pulled because the Trump administration, which the U.S. funded a lot of this company's work, wasn't going to fund it. And a lot of people lost their jobs. So that was a very disappointing and a very low point for me. But the bright side of that was, okay, it's now time to write my book. That's a message to me. And I took a leap from that job. And here I am today.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing those stories, Sid. And your last one especially is the quintessential example of how you could look at different moments in your career as hitting a brick wall. And instead, you saw it as a door that opened, an opportunity for you to walk through and breathe life into this aspiration, into this dream that you had had since you were a young man. And there we are with Seventh Flags. So I think that's an incredible story. My final question for you, Sid, is... Mm -hmm. If you could go back to Vanderbilt and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself?
1: Well, there's a few obvious pieces of advice, (laughs) like drink less beer. (laughs) Um.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. I I think I could take that one, too. I was a rugby player, and I think you were, too, right?
1: I was a rugby player my last two years, where beer is very much part of that culture. And I was also a football player for a couple of years. Probably the smallest defensive back in the history of the Southeast Conference. (laughs) And And believe me, I paid the price. But, you know, I've gotten that kind of question before. And I wouldn't be the person I am today if I didn't do what I'd done then. But there is one thing I would have done differently, which I did do differently when I went to graduate school. And that is to take advantage of the incredible resources there are at really any university, particularly Vanderbilt, in professors, in libraries, in extracurricular kinds of activities, to have done that a little bit more. I was a college athlete and uh, studied enough, and at the time I had to do nothing, I'd did essentially nothing of great import, when I could have very easily spent a couple hours taking advantage of other resources at the school. So I think that would be really the one thing i do differently. Terrific.
0: Sid, I want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. Sid's book is called Seventh Flag. You can pre-order it and we will include a link to Sid's website and to the book where you can press pay or whatever it is, however you choose to (laughs) order it. Sid, I want to say that the common thread for me as I listen to you recount various points in your professional life is the humanity, the compassion, the empathy, and the intellectual curiosity, in addition to your desire to lean into the various chances, the various opportunities that have come your way. And I just think those are wonderful qualities for our young listeners to cultivate throughout the course of their lives. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Andrea. That's quite a compliment. I'll have to remember that and tell my family next time they're complaining about the eggs aren't done enough or whatever. <laughs> and But no, seriously, thank you. It means a lot coming from someone like you who I've known for so long.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live.